Well, how's everybody? Are we, are we better with the, that bright orb that's shining out there? What is that thing anyway, huh? Seems like it's been forever since we've seen much of it. But it's still there, and that's pretty cool. I uh, just want to say uh, welcome this morning to everyone. And if you happen to be new here this morning, we want to extend a really gracious and grateful uh, uh, welcome to you this morning. We're, we're, we're grateful that you're here. We, we hope that if you're looking for a church family, a church home, you might find one here. Um, but if, if for some reason uh, this just isn't the place you feel like God is calling you to, we, we encourage you to, to seek out some of the other churches in town that honor Jesus and, and, and claim his, his kingship, the reality of his kingdom around us, and uh, to plug in and to serve. So, welcome. So, Today, we are going to talk about heaven again. So we are in a six-week study on heaven, and the idea here is, where do we go from here? It's always kind of the big question, isn't it? Where do we go from here? I don't know. Here we go. But anyway, we want to look at that, and and it's a big question, and as a matter of fact, it's existentially haunting to us. Where do we go from here? What does it look like? What, what is, what is the, what, what, what's the afterlife look like? What is, what is happening in this? As a matter of fact, there's an entire industries, billions and billions of dollars are, are, are focused and our uh, businesses are just built around. I mean, for one thing, just the prevention of death, right? We have several people uh, within our church that are in the medical realm and, and, and part of what they're in is, is kind of fighting back against death. Um, and, and so we have this realm of, of death, entire industries surrounding it, even the, the funeral industry and all of those kinds of things. And so we want to address this. We want to look at this. We want to talk about biblically what does the Bible say about it. And I'll tell you now, I don't know everything about it. I can't really tell you exactly what it's going to look like. But I think that there are some things that we can infer from what the Scripture does give us and some things that we can kind of rightly come to uh, some reasonable understanding of, of what that looks like and what the Bible teaches in this. We also, we want to really, we want to be able to minister to others, you know, because here's the reality of this. You see, when we lose someone, we grieve. And grief is real, and, and, and I, I understand this, but here's the key for Christians. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So we grieve, yes, but we grieve differently from the world. We grieve with hope. We grieve with an understanding and a hope and an anticipation of what is to come. And there's nothing more miserable than those who are grieving in a place of hopelessness and utter despair. So we need to be informed about this, and we want to talk about it. So when we start to talk about today, as Christians, our loved ones going off and going to heaven, and we're talking about believing relatives and believing friends and people that we know, what we're really talking about is the intermediate state. Scholars call it the intermediate state. In other words, it's not the final destination. It's a layover. We used that analogy last week. If we were going to fly to Hawaii and we were going through San Francisco As we told people where we were heading and where we were going, we would say we were going to Hawaii, maybe via San Francisco. But we would understand and know that San Francisco was nothing more than just a layover spot. 
and we would be there for a while, but ultimately our ultimate destination was something in some place different. And so when we start to talk about this, about uh, heaven, we're talking about this intermediate state. Now, what is this state? And, and there's some different teaching and some stuff that we want to clarify really quick and we want to kind of get rid of. One is this, there are some, uh, there's, there's a lot of thought obviously on this, there's a lot of belief on this, there's a lot of controversy on all of this, so, so we get all of that. But one thing that we uh, are not talking about is soul sleep. Some, uh, some folks believe in soul sleep, in particular Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah Witnesses believe in soul sleep. And what soul sleep would be is that once you perish, you die here on this earth, it's like your soul is just resting, and what happens is that you just wake up right in time for the final judgment. There's, there is no in-between kind of a place where, where, where there, there's no immediacy into heaven. There's no going from here into the presence of the Lord. You go from here into a state of just sleep, of unconsciousness, and you awake basically at the last judgment kind of a thing. So that would be soul sleep, and, and I don't believe that the Bible gives any kind of idea or credibility or teaching at all for that. Um, the other thing is the idea of purgatory. Purgatory is, is a Catholic um, kind of an idea, and purgatory becomes an in-between place, an intermediate state between hell and heaven. And, and purgatory becomes a place of cleansing. It becomes a place where that, that soul is purified in a manner and in a way that then it could go on and it could go to heaven. Then there's, there's also, as, as we look into these kinds of things, uh, there, there is also this idea of limbo. And I think limbo is maybe less of one these days, but it has been a teaching in the past, and the idea of limbo is, is actually being stuck between heaven and hell kind of a thing. The idea of limbo in the Catholic tradition would be that if you were unbaptized or you had a baby that was unbaptized, that when they died, they would go to limbo. And limbo wasn't a bad place. It was a pleasant place, but it wasn't the fullness of being in the very presence of God. And so that would be that state that you would live in forever, really, unable to get to God because of the teaching and the belief that that. Um, that inherently salvation, much of it is based on baptism as well. So we don't follow that. We don't, we, we, we don't believe uh, that, that baptism actually, uh, baptism is a, is a picture of what God has already done in our lives, but for salvation, we don't believe that it is necessary. And the reason we don't believe that is because we believe that scriptures teach that, that the, that the thief on the cross was promised paradise, and we'll talk about that more but he certainly didn't have time to go uh, undo any of the things that he did. He didn't have time to go help a lot of old ladies across the street, and he didn't have time to go get baptized. But his promise was, was eternity with Jesus in paradise. So, uh, so sometimes we just believe that uh, there, there's a lot of belief there about reincarnation out in the world, right? That we somehow we continue to come back and keep trying this thing again and keep trying to get it right. And so far, I'm pretty sure nobody has, you know. That's what the Bible teaches. If you want to know what the Bible teaches about good people, it teaches that there really aren't any. That, that each of us have fallen short, that we've all sinned, that we've all messed up, and that we are all equally in need of God's redemptive plans in our lives. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is a portion that each man would live once, 
and then face judgment. You see, you know that, uh, that, that God created you as an individual. He created you uniquely you. He did not create you to become the summation of all of your incarnations and somehow some kind of a multi-level, multi-personality uh, kind of an existence. No, he created you to be you. There's never been another you, and there's never going to be another you. And, and, and so the Bible very clearly never gives the idea or the taught, uh, teaching of reincarnation. Some people think that we just kind of like when we die here, we just become spirits, and then we go to heaven, and we live in heaven forever. I think a lot of Christians believe that right now. That that's kind of our interpretation and our idea of heaven is that we just go, we die, we become a spirit, and then we go and we live in heaven forever with God. Well, it's really not how it ends. There is the intermediate heaven. And so we want to look at that. It's, it's, it's after death. The intermediate heaven is after our death here on earth, but it is before the resurrection. And really the focus of the Bible and of the New Testament is on the resurrection, not on the intermediate state. So uh, heaven changes, but God doesn't. You see, and sometimes we're like, whoa, try, I mean, you can't say that heaven changes. Well, yeah, I, I, we can, actually, because, because uh, heaven does change. God is the only one who is without change. God created heaven, therefore God has every ability to change what it looks like and, and, and to develop heaven into his plan as he sees fit. So, um, it's uh, the final state, again, is going to be the resurrection, which happens when there's new heavens and new earth, when there is a redemption of the entire creation. So, is it physical or is it spiritual, the intermediate heaven? And I don't, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I, I really don't know. Um, but I want to look at a few things. Um, there, it, it's one or the other. Um, it has physical properties, and we're going to look at that. There are physical properties to this idea of intermediate heaven. But also, too, um, are, we just in, temp, are, we, are we given a temporary physical body? I don't know. Are we simply, are we in the spirit, just, just our souls awaiting the time where we, where we are pining towards the resurrection in, in a way where we're like, man, I can't wait for that. I can't wait to feel. I can't wait to touch. I can't wait to taste. I can't wait to walk or experience. Because again, much, is, uh, much against kind of how we've been taught or come to understand is that we were always created to be both physical and spiritual. You see, God first took the dust of the earth and he formed Adam. He formed his body first and it says that he breathed life into him and then he became a living being. And so really the idea of the fullness of being a human in the way that God has intended it is both physical and spiritual. And we know certainly that, that the soul is the eternal thing that animates, that brings life into the body and without it, we fall over dead right? And if you've seen a dead body, you just know, wow, it's void of life, that it's just gone out of that. And, and so, so there are some, and we're going to look at this, we'll look at the physical qualities of some of the verses that we see, and you know, I'm just going to leave you in a spot of I don't really know. So before the cross, what did this look like? We start to talk about what this looks like after the cross and after Jesus and his redemptive plan, his work on the cross. But, but basically what the Bible teaches is this uh, Old Testament kind of stuff is that basically that the soul departs. When it leaves the body, it goes to one place, either Sheol or Hades, okay? 
and Sheol being kind of the place of the waiting place of the righteous, and Hades being the waiting place of the unrighteous. So we have this thing here. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, and I'm going to throw this out there, and it's uh, Ephesians 4.8 just kind of throws this thing in there. there. There's not a lot of stuff to back it up with, and, and you always have to be careful when you start to, you don't, you don't ever want to create doctrine off of very little scripture. You never want to create doctrine off of one verse. But I'm going to say this. Uh, it talks about, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I'm leaning towards this, that when Jesus died and was arrested before his ascension, that he visited Sheol and he took the righteous with him and he took the righteous with him into what is the intermediate state right now. And I believe now that the Hades... The unrighteous that are waiting in Hades are still in Hades, still awaiting the final judgment. The reason I think that is that in Revelation 20, it, it, it talks about that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire in the final time. And so I believe that, 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 that Hades is still um, the place of the unrighteous. So I don't really think that anybody necessarily is in the end game of hell at this point. Um, we, get a, we do have a, a, a thing that we can look at that Jesus taught with, and it was this idea, it was in Luke chapter 16, and it's a parable, and it's a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. Now, now, what is this? Is this is this uh, is this a real story? Is it is it is it a parable? Is it an allegory? Is it literal? Is it figurative? I think maybe both. Personally, I think that it's a little bit of both. I think certainly it's not just meant to be this story that is just given to us as absolute fact. I think it's a parable. But I do think as all parables, it does teach spiritual truth. And Jesus is using this as a guide. Now, let's keep in mind, too, that this parable isn't intended for us to, to understand a whole lot about. He's, Jesus isn't trying to explain heaven to us in this parable. What he is trying to explain to us is, is the dangers of living for oneself and, and for wealth and just for uh, th those kinds of things. So let's read through it real quick, and then we'll look at some of the points in it. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophet. Let them, hear, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So uh, what does this look like? Um, well, we can gather some things. I think there's some things that we shouldn't try to gather from this. Like, I don't think that this is telling us that heaven and hell are always visible from one another. But for whatever reason, in this story, they, they seem to be, but certainly there is this, this, uh, this chasm that is fixed between them. We see that angels carry Lazarus and they take him to paradise, it says. And basically, he ends up at this place called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, uh, the idea of Sheol here. And, and so he's found here, and the angels have carried him here. But you know what's interesting here is that he has fellowship with Abraham. And so I think that we could, you know, start to look at some of these things. He has fellowship, and the rich man himself seems to be alone. Um, there is a fixed chasm between the two. It is, it is an impossibility for them to move to and fro between these places. And the other thing that's interesting here is that the rich man and uh, Abraham both seem to be reasoning. Uh, they're communicating, and they are understanding the continuity of this life and how it plays into the eternal life. And, and Abraham, or, uh, uh, the, the rich man, has a real concern for his brothers and for where they're at because he understands the reality that what they're doing there now has an eternal significance and, and difference in their life. And he begins to say, will you go and talk to them? There are physical traits. He talks about a thirst. Uh, he has a tongue dipping fingers in the water to help to alleviate that. There seem to be some physical traits there, but obviously there is no crossing the gap here in this spot between um, heaven and hell. So that's a story that Jesus told prior to um, his, his death and resurrection. Um, let's look at something here that we see um, in his resurrection. It's Luke, 24, Luke 23, verse 43, and it's him talking to the thief on the cross, and the thief on the cross asks him a question. He says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And, and in saying that, he's just saying, look, I recognize you to be a king with a kingdom, that you have authority, that you're innocent, that you're, you know, and, and all of these things that he begins to recognize, and he turns to Jesus, and he says, would you just even remember me? And Jesus says, look, I'll do you one better than that. You're going to be with me today in paradise. I love Alistair Begg. He preaches on this, and Alistair Begg, he, he does this great story about it and stuff, but, but he just talks about, can you imagine, you know, like when he came to the proverbial uh, pearly gates, and, and they looked up, and here's this guy who was hanging next to Jesus, dying for, we don't know exactly what, some kind of murder or insurrection, or he's called the thief on the cross, but we got to remember this, that he's experiencing the worst form of capital punishment that the Romans had crucifixion. So whatever he's done, it's a heinous crime in the eyes of the Romans, and, 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 and all of crucifixion was about humiliation, and it was about pain, and it was about all of this stuff. And so when they look up, and here's this guy, and he's at the gates, and they're like, what are you, what are you doing? 
how'd you, how'd you get here? How, how, how did you get here? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, just a minute. I need to get my manager. Goes back and comes out and manager's like, uh, yeah, well, hey, great. Good to see you. Here you are right here at the pearly gates. You know, uh, do you know anything? I mean, can you help us out? I mean, we, we just can't really figure out why you're here. And he says, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. That's all he's got. That's how we come, right? Empty hands and empty pockets. We bring nothing, but Jesus brings everything. And so Jesus promises him <clears throat> paradise. The word paradise here is, is in the Greek, it's paradeza. It, 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 it's, it's a word that is used uh, in the Septuagint for the Garden of Eden. And, and it's, it's, it also is a word that is used for, the, for these gardens that Cyrus had, and they were walled off. They, they were, so, so when it starts to talk about that, when, when the Bible begins to talk about Eden, it's not talking about just a wild place. It's, it's actually talking about a place that is kept. It's talking about a garden that is kept, that is beautiful, that has all kinds of things. And, and, and that idea of keeping was one that was passed on to us as people. We were supposed to be keepers of this garden. I remind us that that's still a, a call on, on Christians today is that we are to care for the home that God gave us. He's, we're supposed to care for the earth. Um, and, and so... It was this idea, and God's intention was always that we would go out of that garden and that we would subdue the earth, or we would make it a place that was uh, available to everybody and to their flourishing, to see other people and all of humanity really flourish in this idea. But then something happened. This, this word is used three times in the New Testament. Once, Paul uses it for the third heaven. The idea of the third heaven. And when Paul is talking about that, he's talking about the dwelling place of God, that kind of heaven, this third heaven. In Revelation 2, it is used when it talks about the tree of life and the location of the tree of life. And then it's used here with the thief on the cross. And what's really interesting about all of this is if you start to think about the big picture, you see, is that what happened when we fell is that we were, we were, we were cast out of the garden out of this place, and, and we were exiled kind of out east of Eden, and then this tree of life was guarded by these cherubim with these flaming swords that, that, that turned from every side so that man in his sinful state could not eat of this tree and live forever. But see, then this tree went somewhere because we see it again in Revelation. We're going to see it again in Revelation uh, 22 at the end of it. You see, um, it, it's kind of like God kicked us out of that and it went away. But it, but, it be, but it exists still somewhere, I believe. Um, we were expelled by the garden. It's still somewhere. What's kind of interesting about some of this stuff, when we start getting really weird, um, is that in Acts 7, we see, this, we see uh, Stephen being martyred. He's the first martyr. And, and it says that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. A couple cool things about that. One is that we see Jesus here, and he's standing. We know that Jesus prior to this was seated at the right hand of power, seated at the right hand of the Father, but as the first martyr comes into 
uh, the kingdom into this sense, Jesus stands to raise, to, to meet him in this place. But it says that the heavens were open to him. And I don't want to get too weird about dimensions and things like that. But there was something that happened with Stephen in this to where all of a sudden what was invisible, what he was unable to see in the spiritual realm and the reality of the spiritual realm, it opened up to him and he was able to look into that and see that. So is that, you know, so, so there are, is this idea that we have been cast out and ultimately we're going to be re, rejoined and reunited and in this place again where the tree of life is at. But right now, what does the Bible says? What does it say? It says basically that the place of God is where, or the heaven is where God is. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also, that you may be also. It's this idea that wherever God is, that's the reality of where heaven is. So God in his presence, he's the one who makes heaven. It's not about places. It's about that presence of God. It's about being with God. It's about God being enough. And I hope that in this study that we don't begin to just long for the things of heaven, but that we long more and more and more for just to be with God, because that's really what this is about. So what happens to us when we leave here? As believers, this is what happens. 2 Corinthians 12, 3, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know God knows. Now, when I say I don't know, Scripture, I don't know. He didn't even know. <laughs> he went to heaven at this point. Paul did, and he doesn't even know if he was in the body or not in the body. The, the experience of him going into heaven at this point was somehow foreign to him in a way that he couldn't grasp, am I in my body or am I out of my body? He didn't know, but it doesn't really matter because he was in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, there is one verse where people make the case that the, that the intermediate heaven is just a spiritual existence and not a bodily one because he says here, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay, so... One more thing I want to look at, and this is still dealing with before the final thing. This is Revelation 6, and, and this is the idea of the intermediate heaven, and this is where we see the martyrs and, and this, this picture that John gets in Revelation. And it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we know this. God has this time clock that's ticking. And when the last martyr comes into heaven, it's the point in time where it's game over and it's done. But I want to point out a few things about this, about this idea, because this is, they are in the, the intermediate heaven. Uh, and so let's, uh, let's look into this. Uh, oh, really quick, let me back up. I'm sorry, I missed a note or two here. For one thing, one, one case for it being physical is that Jesus is there and he's in a physical body, right? We know that. Enoch and Elijah. Enoch 
was taken, and he seems to have not died. It says that, that he, you know, he, he loved God, and then he was not, for God took him. And then Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. And so there's two physical bodies that we know to be in this place at this point in time too. We also see that Moses and Elijah, when they came back for the transfiguration of Jesus, seemed to have a physical form. So I don't know. But the martyrs in Revelation 6, what can we gain from this? Well, let's look at this. They went from earth to heaven first. First point, they went from earth to heaven. They were the same ones who on earth had been killed for Christ, there was continuity in their lives. Uh, there was a personality. They were individual. They were unique. There was a history of what had happened to them here on the earth. Um, they were, uh, uh, they remembered their lives here on the earth. They called out and they expressed themselves audibly. They raised their voices, it says. They were aware of the situation on earth, it would seem to some degrees. And they were looking at it and they were seeing. So sometimes one of the big questions is, is do people in heaven know what is going on here on earth? And there seems to be a couple of times in these things where people seem to have understanding this. And also it says that they rejoice with the angel. All of heaven rejoices, rejoices with the angels when one sinner turns and is saved. And so there seems to be some understanding of things that are going on, and that's a great comfort to us, I think, sometimes, because, it, again, it brings that continuity. It brings a connection between us here on earth and into heaven. Uh, they called out. They expressed themselves. They raised their voices. They were aware of the situation on earth, and they were asking God to intercede. All, um, and, and then they were asking, how long? They were aware of time. It's kind of interesting, and God tells them to wait just a little bit longer. Now, it's an interesting thing because we start to say, well, wait a minute. In heaven, try. Everything is supposed to be perfect. These people have an angst, and they have a recognition that justice has not been fulfilled and that things aren't done, and, things are, and, 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 and God is like, seems to be going, look. He gives them a white robe and just says, look, just rest a little bit longer. See, it's an interesting thing because ultimately heaven... The great promises of God are not fulfilled for us until the new heavens and the new earth. That's the time when it's said that there will be no more tears, when death and Hades are thrown into uh, the, the lake of fire and all of those kinds of things. When death is no more and when God is living with his people, that's what we're really looking for. But they, at this point, have a concern for justice. They're communicating with God. God is answering them and talking with them. And he's telling them just to wait a little bit longer. It seems that they have a strong family connection with those who are left behind. They call us fellow servants and brothers. God knows exactly when all of this is going to sum up. But the reality of it is, is that they've entered into conscious fellowship with the Lord. And they are anticipating the final state. They're anticipating really what's to come. The day when judgment is brought. The day when it's all made right. When the books are opened up and every wrong is made right. They're anticipating that at that spot. You see, for now, it's the fellowship of believers until we reach the final state, this intermediate heaven is, and the culmination of God's plan and the fulfillment of his promises, which is really the resurrection. And that's the place where everything that we truly want, the things that we're really longing for, is, becomes a reality. You see, the New Testament continues to focus not on this intermediate heaven, but on the resurrection. 
on the new Jerusalem, which is presently in heaven, but one day will descend and will join with the earth, it says. And then the great redemptive promises of God will be fulfilled right here in the new earth. So next week, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about not just the resurrection, but, but, but why the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection and even a bigger picture. I hope to paint for us a bigger picture of this redemptive plan that God has through the resurrection. And the week after that, then um, Luke Ost is actually going to share with you about the redemption of the entire creation. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that... Um, that even though we can't know everything, that you do give us some glimpses of things. You, you help us to see some things so that we can have uh, just degrees of understanding. We thank you that you have a plan and that that plan won't be thwarted. We thank you that, uh, that you know us, that, that we are uh, individual, that you're concerned with us, that you know exactly where we're at right now, and you know exactly what you're doing in our lives. And so we find great comfort in that, and we pray Lord, that you would help us to have a, a heavenly mindset, a, a, a perspective on, on, on the world and help us to, to see the world in light of eternity. Help us to see people as, as eternally existing somewhere. Help us to have eyes for this like you do. And, and Lord, help us to be just filled with your spirit as we go out this week. Help us to, to recognize and to understand that each, each person here has a ministry. That, that we are, are to go out and we're, we're to speak hope into the world around us. And, and, and we're, we're to, to serve within our community. And we're supposed to love well. And, and we're supposed to even be, maybe even at times, a, a, a place where, where we say, hey, we're, we're headed in the wrong direction here. We're supposed to be a voice into the world around us as well. So God, I'm praying that you give us courage, that you give us strength that you would fill us with your spirit and that we would seek you out with the whole of our being, that, that God, that we would seek out the things that you've planned for us and we might walk in them this week. And we give praise to you, we give glory to you. We thank you that you're the God of all power, that you hold this universe together, that you have a plan that won't be thwarted. And we give you all glory and all of honor because you are so worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.